ultimately, it is a very simple business, which is let's reach the audience, let's engage with them, let's do that well and honestly. And then if you can do that well, you will be able to monetize it. Welcome back to Media Voices, everybody. We take a look at all the news and the views from the media world over the past week. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter. And that extract you just heard is from my chat with Aaron Asadi, Chief Audience and Ecom Officer at Future. We talked about his previous role as Chief Content Officer at Future, where the e-commerce function now sits within the business and the challenge of creating content to drive affiliate e-commerce revenue well, get that, delivering mm. value to the audience. That's crazy. That's crazy. Nobody can do that. <laughs> it was into, I mean, he. one of the things that he said was the audience is the starting point, and it was, it was nice and refreshing. And <laughs> it was good to hear. It was good to hear. You, so that, that goes against your whole thing that bean counters are taken over if they're still thinking about audience first. Well, he's, mm. he's absolutely not a bean counter. So right. it, was good, it was a great interview. <laughs> okay, great. Before then, we're going to get straight into our news roundup. And if you've been paying any attention to the news over the past week, week and a half, you'll know that there have been countless instances of people reporting breathlessly on the effects of climate change, from the flash floods that are occurring across parts of Europe to great heat waves and unseasonable cold weather elsewhere. Uh, Climate has become a bit of a flashpoint over the summer. But Wolfgang Blau has argued that climate change needs to be just as embedded into newsroom culture as any other topic. And effectively, he's saying that if you're not a climate reporter yet, you will be soon. So, Peter, what is he saying here exactly? Well, his his sort of kicking off point, if you like, is that for, I don't know, 18 months or so, everyone became a COVID-19 reporter. And it didn't matter whether you were sat on the business desk or on the science desk or on the health desk or on the sports desk even. There was some aspect of COVID-19 coverage that you became involved in or responsible for. And his point is that's exactly what should be happening with climate reporting. Uh, And it's a really good piece, as you would expect, and... You know, these these quotes as an environment reporter called Emily Atkin, who did an interview with Brian Selter, CNN. Um, and she says, There's no excuse for a reporter today who doesn't understand the basic science of COVID 19. So, why is it not the same for climate change? And that's the point of this whole thing. And he goes through this piece that he's done for Neiman Lab, he goes through the lessons that we, we can all learn from the coverage of COVID over the last 18 months or so. I mean, I think the point is, and I suppose this is where you get into an argument or a discussion, <laughs> COVID-19 was a very clear and present danger, and that was why it was treated the way it was treated. Climate change, Jesus, man, you only got to look at the TV, is a very clear and present danger, but it's not being treated that way. Yeah, absolutely. It's been true to this, this kind of, you know what, we'll kick the can down the road a little bit. This is for future generations to deal with. Yeah. It's almost a sort of background noise thing at the moment. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so Esther, what are some of his recommendations for what newsrooms should be doing here? 
Yeah, I mean, he's he's got he's got a lot of lessons. I will just say this: there was actually um, I don't know if you two remember the piece that came out in Digital Content Next last year that showed that actually audiences are really interested in mm-hmm. this coverage. Um, and it was it was at the point that COVID coverage was starting to tail off and people were getting a bit kind of fed up. Um, and climate coverage was still coming out on top of a lot of search results. Um, we'll, we'll link to the piece in the show notes. Um, but so he says that basically it's, it, there's there's a lot of things that newsrooms can do to sort of embed this a little bit more. Um, and a lot of it kind of centers around knowing about some of the basic scientific facts and, and metrics in the, in the same way that, you know, there was a lot of consensus over what was going on with the pandemic. He says that that needs to be translated in the same way as climate change. And, you know, you can do um, some little fact boxes. Um, he's, he's got some really good suggestions for sort of ways you can just make sure that your, your readers are just as up on this as you are. Um, he also suggests potentially testing an audience's climate literacy with like um, surveys or quizzes. <laughs> Not so sure about that one. but We yeah. will all be dead within A, 25 to 50 years, <laughs> B, 50 to 100 years. Um, but the the other point he makes is that actually throughout the pandemic, there was quite a bit of scientific disagreement over how fast it was spreading, how it was spreading, how to deal with it. Um, I remember sort of what was April last year, there was a huge disagreement about the effectiveness of masks. And now everybody's kind of on the same page about that. Scientifically, everybody's on the same page. The public is not, but, but scientists are on the same page with, with the aerosol transmission and, and the fact that you don't need to debt all surfaces as much. Um and he says it's, it's a similar thing in, in climate science is that it, it can look like there are a lot of disagreements. And the challenge is that you've got to take a lot of sort of, quote, the scientific disconsensus. And actually, if you the more you look into it, the more consensus there actually is on the fact that we might not know how these sort of one in a million year freak weather events are occurring. But the fact that they're occurring every couple of months is indicative of climate change. And people very much agree on the core causes of it even mm. if they don't understand how it's happening so we, there's, just, there's just some points to pick out about how to approach this um and i'll i'll leave the fact that people in the u.s basically don't believe in it oh, as, wow. as a yeah. point for you guys <laughs> potentially there is hope for the uk and europe at least because even places like the sun which previously has been very skeptical about um anthropogenic climate change oh who owns the sun uh, that's interesting, isn't it? Is that would, would that be News UK? And I'm not oh, sure who's the boss of that. News UK would that be? Oh my god! Hang on, is that Rupert Murdoch? Oh, noted climate skeptic. Wow, that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, um, but even they have in um, digital at least they have launched basically kind of their their green team. They have been promoting much more. Well, this anti-climate change coverage. So I think that there is potentially hope there. <laughs> the difference between Europe and the US is absolutely recognised in this piece that, that mm. Wolfgang Blau has written. And I think in some ways, the point is it's even more important in the US because mm. he's got this, there's this little grid in here that he used. That, I've just got This environmentalist, uh, environmental scientist, Dana... Nusitelli? Yeah. So I'll just start that again. <laughs> so there's this environmental scientist, Dana Nusitelli, has, has done this like five stages of climate denial or almost like that. Jesus and, Christ. Uh, it's, it's exactly, yeah. it's scary. Well, she actually compares it to COVID denial, the sort of, you know, from the first yeah, stage it's not yeah, happening to 
oh, it's too late. Just and most of it's just just Donald Trump quotes. I was going to say that's a terrible. <laughs> but, uh, what, what? Yeah, but there is one Boris Johnson quote in there. So hey. Again, can't believe I'm going to say this, but we've got to get back to trusting experts. That's yeah. bullshit. How how dare you? <laughs> the, the British public has had enough of experts, Peter, actually. That's why they to us. The, there's part of, and I, and I know people like um, Thomas Bakedale point this out quite a bit on, on social media, is that you get media that will, and, and this is especially prevalent in climate change science, they will pit two experts against each yeah. other as like opposing views. Yeah. Um, and often these these two experts will have a lot more that they agree on than they disagree on. But because of the reporting, they'll say, oh, this expert thinks this and this expert disagrees with him. And at that point, the audience is like, well, why should we believe the experts? Yeah, it it's all, that. Actually, it's worse than that, isn't it? Because sometimes it's an expert mm. put up against some nut job as if the two points of view are, are equally I I, valid. I, I think when you have two experts, I think it's more dangerous. But it's, you know, that comes back to how you're presenting these people as whether they're experts or not. You know, did they get their degree from, say, University of Cambridge or did they get it from a Facebook article they read on their mum's kitchen table? And mm. I think Peter's right that when you do have kind of somebody who isn't an expert but is purporting to be against a sort of real climate scientist, even if you put it up there kind of as, you know, balanced, the problem is that the the middle of the debate gets dragged towards the kind of the fake yeah. aspect of it as well. So people get this impression that it's either, that there is debate on it when in reality, like you said, the scientific consensus is that it's a real, real danger. I think the other thing that's interesting about this is that when, when it comes to audiences, um, Wolfgang actually says that you know, it's, it's not a good idea to separate your audience in, into sort of, okay, these people acknowledge climate change and these mm. people don't, and to try and cater to that. Because it is a lot more nuanced than that. You, you know, it's, it's not a case if you either believe in it or you don't. That There's a sort of spectrum. Um, and he, he draws in some um, examples of psychologists that have got... Um, I think this suggests sort of six different groups of opinion on climate change. And he says, if you approach it like that, you're much more likely to be able to engage the, the different groups of people rather than kind of try and polarise them even further. Mm. That's a nice um, It's a good piece. <laughs> I think, sadly, it's going to take things like floods and wildfires and insanely high temperature or unseasonally low temperatures for people to actually get a clue. Yeah. You know, there's that grid, that last quote from the author, Jonathan Franson, is, is actually, I mean, it's scary, but it's right, that the climate apocalypse is coming mm. and to prepare for it, to prepare for it, we need to admit that we can't prevent it. And it kind of looks like that's where we're getting to. And now Bloomberg launched a magazine that was aimed specifically at, um, I'm trying to think how to phrase this partly, like, like C-suite, business leaders mm. directly to get to those people that can actually that have, that have got the money to change some of this and yeah, people we, that are often sitting on their private jets a lot less bothered <laughs> about their impact on the environment yeah i remember at the time when that launched we said that those are the people who you need to be targeting with this because they're the ones who are kind of if you can appeal if you can stoke their egos if you can appeal to their vanity and say only you can solve climate change then that's actually going to make a huge trickle down difference the, the BBC has done a list of the pros of climate change. Oh, God, that was oh, ridiculous. Yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> Let's move to the news in brief. 
And now for the news in brief. Facebook is setting up a program to pay creators a mere billion dollars mm. between now and 2022, according to Mark Zuckerberg. So the money's going to be allocated among all types of creators. Uh, no idea, like, <laughs> publishers. But it's going to be as a way of incentivizing them to use certain Facebook and Instagram features. I don't know how much of this is a push to try and get sort of young people back on Facebook, but it's not going to work. So. I think it's it's close. It's more likely to be a push for because they can see you know TikTok and Snapchat eating its yeah. e-commerce lunch a little bit. So I wrote a piece for the drum about this, and yeah, basically every I spoke to, all the agencies were basically saying, yeah, Facebook is not known as a destination for creators. Instagram is needs to keep pace with its competitors in terms of kind of the rewards it gives to its key influencers, and it's just not at the moment. And that's just like Trump changed to them. It's just really sad. Oh, did you see Biden earlier this week basically saying misinformation on Facebook is killing people? It is. Oh, no, it is, yeah. But I wonder if technically that counts as content creation for Facebook. And if so, should they be paying for that? (laughs) Jesus. I won't relate it to this. (laughs) Um, Executives at The Social Network have gotten a bit of a fight over... Um, the the data tool CrowdTangle. So Facebook bought this social data trends analysis tool a while back called CrowdTangle. Uh, problem was CrowdTangle was showing how uh, far right media sources on Facebook were getting insanely high engagement. Um, so there was like two groups, the people at CrowdTangle that said, well, let's get the truth out there and then we can maybe do something about it. And then what Kevin Roos calls team selective disclosure, <laughs> which is the best phrase ever, said, nah, we're not doing this. And they pretty much deep sex the whole thing. So mm. yay for freedom of information. <laughs> uh, moving on, The Athletic is raising the cost of its annual subscription for the first time since it launched in 2016. So a yearly subscription is now going to cost $71.99 a year which is going up from $59.99. Its chief exec, Alex Mather, pointed out that they were still at the same price point for a subscription when the company had just three employees, whereas now they were a team of 450 plus on three continents. Um, it's it's hard to look at this timing and not think they have recognized the fact that they are not going to be able to have as many people on their kind of free trial subscriptions or their heavily discounted ones. That, that was saying. exactly my thought. I was like, they're, yeah. they're trying to make up for the cut pricing last year. Yeah. And also the fact that they're going to see some some of their non-super users fall away. So yeah, they, they need to sort of like, they seriously need to do this. I'm, I'm, I would be interested to see what this actually does to their churn rate though, because that is a sizable increase if you look at it, even from a kind of price anchoring point of view from, you know, what other subscriptions are worth. This to me seems maybe a step too far for some people. And Twitter has announced that it is sunsetting its fleets (laughs) feature, uh, which, uh, I mean, they launched it about 18 months ago and it it was, it basically allowed, it, it was like Twitter's version of stories. So it allowed users to post tweets, which disappeared after 24 hours. Did either of you ever use it? Nope. The response to this was just brilliant. So, yeah. So many people just said, oh, I've tweeted fleets. I forgot about that. And I saw another guy saying, wait, what, you, you're getting rid of it in August. Why don't you just get rid of it today? Why not now? <laughs> it's it's taken up valuable real estate. Normal tweets have such a fleeting lifespan in your oh, timeline anyway. Get out, get out. <laughs> um, the universe has obviously got a sense of humour because it's decided that I should talk about Netflix planning an expansion into video games. Yeah. Um, 
It's hired a former EA and Facebook executive to lead the effort. The intent is to offer video games alongside films and TV series in the main Netflix app. I have no clue what any of that means. So I reckon, I mean, I was streaming a game yesterday directly from uh, PlayStation Now, which is their on-demand streaming service for games. And the problem is that it's incredibly data intensive. It requires a lot of infrastructure behind the scenes to do. Obviously, Netflix has that. But it seems to me that if they are, they're either going to have to license some games in the way that Google's Stadia has, or they're going to, if they want to get into game creation, they're going to find out that it's incredibly costly. And looking at Netflix's books. Moving on, Lord Rothermere is reportedly readying an £810 million bid to take over the DMGT, the Daily Mail and General Trust, to take it private. So it would end its, God, nearly century-long run as a publicly owned company. I, I just think this this greatest, this greater opacity around business models, about circulation figures, it's all just a fudge to hide the fact that kind of they're not doing enough to boost their revenue models. Yeah, arguably, if Lord Rothermere had actually had a proper control of the Daily Mail when the whole Brexit thing had took place, maybe it would have been less Brexit supporting. I don't know, but... Mm. You know, same shit, different rapper. <laughs> yeah. Talking of which, how did I hey, last one? Wonderful. What a segue. Wonderful. Um, GB News um, are attracting zero... Vi- GB News is attracting zero viewers after a boycott overtaking the knee. I d- what was it? They said that they wouldn't take a stance on taking the knee and then somebody took the knee and they took a stance and now viewers are angry. Yeah. Uh, What's going on here? Pretty much. So yeah. Guto Hari, uh, who I used to think was great on the news, and then he went and joined Boris Johnson. So clearly he's got some issues in terms of <laughs> judgment. But anyway, he's joined, he's joined GB News. And then he took the knee during a program to show support for the England team. Because it, it was a point, wasn't it, that taking the knees an anti-racism stance, not a Black Lives Matter stance. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was, they, and in in the immediate aftermath of that, uh, Jim Watson at the Guardian did some really, really good kind of uh, got some good scoops about this. So its programming director John McAndrew quit. Um, yeah. There's a, reportedly huge internal fights about the direction that they need to take the the channel in order to get some viewers. Like we, we've said before, it's not necessarily. Uh, it's not necessarily a play for revenue from the founders. It's always been a sort of like influence thing, just as you know, Murdoch owning worthless asset the sun is. But even those paltry audience figures suggest that it's not even getting that influence. So this this ongoing war internally to decide the future of GB News after God less than a month. But hey, the white knight is coming in. <laughs> Nigel Farage. Four days a week, man. Can you imagine that? How <laughs> tedious will that be? It's just going to be the same old shit that he had on LBC before he was fired. But he'll never get fired from well, unless he falls down unless on one takes knee. Takes the knee, yeah. <laughs> this week, I spoke with Aaron Asadi, chief audience and e-commerce senate. Future. We spoke about where the e-commerce function sits within Future how it's developing in relation to audience development and creating content for affiliate e-commerce revenues across a huge range of brands. First, we spoke about this new role across e-commerce and audience development. So I joined um, 
future in the back end of 2016 following a acquisition of a publishing company, magazine publishing company based in Bournemouth. And I was, I ran the magazine division at Future for a bit. And then I was given the opportunity to run the online and print brands as a chief content officer, which was great. I mean, it was, it was a wonderful time to grow those markets and games and tech and music as we did and work with some brilliant people doing it. During that time, I, I probably became a bit... Um, not obsessed, but certainly enthused by the affiliate side of the business, yeah. and uh, and definitely became obsessed with uh, SEO. Um, we then acquired TI and had a, a restructure, as you do with those um, massive integrations, and uh, so a new role was created uh, for audience and e-commerce, which were two things. I'm very very interested in and i love the people that work with that work in those areas of future so yes i am now the chief audience and e-commerce officer which means i lead the audience dev team working with editorial sort to design the content strategies and deliver seo best practice so our content ranks well as it deserves to in google and then i also lead the e-commerce team which is a separate team um to effectively optimize and monetize the shopping content we produce on those on our brands. So I work with editorial in audience and I work with editorial in e-commerce, but I lead the audience dev team in that and I lead the e-commerce team as well. So it's actually not been a massive step away from chief content officer where I was basically just the other side of the fence. I was leading the yep. editorial team working with e-commerce and working with audience dev. Is the idea there to align the content closer to that affiliate revenue goal we don't have like one sole goal at future which is you know let's become the best e-commerce publisher in the world we have that goal but it's not the only goal um we recognize that the importance of other content that we're not going to monetize through e-commerce and we recognize that there's a great deal of opportunity for us as a business and a great deal of desire from customers most importantly to not just read shopping content about a thing that they like so if they're into, you know, uh, I don't know, Spider-Man, um, it's not exactly, you know, that's something we we have the brands do that. We've got Cinema Blend, we've got News Armor on Games Radar where they want to engage with Spider-Man and we see value in that and we've got the experts to, to engage with that. So there's no, there's no sort of um, plan to align around let's just do shopping content at all. What I would say is we're, we are incredibly collaborative at future the editorial teams will, will, will obviously work with the audience team audience team works with e-commerce e-commerce works with editorial advertising we work closely as well to make sure that the content we're creating is the right sort of content for obviously for our customers and making sure they understand that so that they are doing the best sell um, to their clients so we're an incredibly collaborative business i would say so there isn't one goal that we're kind of one sole business goal to, that we're trying to gravitate around. We're just trying to go, okay, how do we grow and engage an audience really, really well in these areas? And then after that, try and monetize it. So the audience is a starting point in that sense. A hundred percent. Like e-commerce isn't an isolated hub um, at future at all. We work across all the functions together 
um, as we do in any area. Future is as you'd expect for a large business now, two and a half thousand employees or thereabouts. It, there is complexity. We have an e-commerce division. We've got brilliant tech engineers. We've got, you know, really super hardworking finance team. We've got HR. We, you know, it's, there's a massive different people doing different things. But in my head, it all orbits what is a very simple business, which is around delivering content to audiences that want to learn or engage with their, their particular passion in a, in a certain way. So we all have to, that whole complex business has to orbit that one simple thing, which is let's grow the audience, let's engage with them, and then let's let's then do our best to monetize that in a way that doesn't affect those t- first two things. Most important thing is is reaching an audience and and engaging with them. Without that, we don't have a business. Is it difficult that you're trying to do that across such a broad range of subjects? I went on the website earlier. I think you've got 60-something brands there. Yeah, we've got way more than this. It's well over 100 in terms of brands. I don't want to say it's not difficult because obviously there's nothing in media that's easy, right? Mm. Um, And there's always challenges because all of those markets that we're in are competitive markets, every single one of them. As I said, we are extremely collaborative as a media business. What we strive to do and what I think we do well is we we all congregate around very clear goals and uh, very disciplined, I think, about who is doing what. So we're very defined on what the responsibility is. So even though the task might be massive and complex and have lots of things to do, as long as you're clear on who is doing what thing, uh, it generally gets achieved. Now, with as many brands as we have, and in as many ways to create value, both for the customer and and for our business as we do, there is inherent complexity that needs to be carefully navigated. But fundamentally, we've got the same simple goals. It's grow the audience, engage with them, and monetizing that engagement. And that can be in cycling, it can be in music, it can be in tech, but it is pretty simple goals. Now, that, that, that I do like that about future. And indeed, the same could be said of many media companies. But ultimately, it is a very simple business, which is let's reach the audience, let's engage with them, let's do that well and honestly. And then if you can do that well, you will be able to monetize it. Is there anything that ties that kind of brand stamp thing that this is a future title? Something that makes it future rather than someone else? Well, I would say, look, we're in competitive markets, so I cannot say that is true, and then say we're we're we are entirely unique because I don't I don't think that's true. Um, I, w- I would say the plethora of brands and the different markets we're in, and perhaps even the success we have in those markets, does make future stand out. But ultimately, a future brand is always serving, I think, a very clear need, and often that need is someone's passion. So if it's cycling or playing the guitar or or building a PC, we strive to create content that helps that audience learn more about the thing they love to do. So we've got brilliant developers that help do that. We've got, and they build their cutting edge tech and we've got wonderful, like wonderful writers. We've got brilliant sales team across the globe, you know, hardworking professionals in every corner of the business. Events teams, print distributors, designers, marketing, you know, all the different people, but they were all with this hive of energetic, smart people, but we all orbit the same thing, which is how can we help our customers? So going back to e-commerce, Future's been invested in affiliate e-commerce for a while. We've talked about how you got started in that a while back. Did the e-commerce infrastructure that you've had in place really come into play during the pandemic? I, I think I'm answering this honestly. I don't think we made a single change to our 
outside of the acquisition of TI, which we can park that because that was going to happen with or without a pandemic, I don't think we made a single change to our e-commerce structure as a result of the pandemic at all. As I said, it's not it's not an island e-commerce. It doesn't exist on its own. It is just one part of a connected entity. We have, over the years, as that market has grown, developed, I think, better and better buying advice across more and more uh, content areas. We've Our tech team has built brilliant tech for, to match the prices to the pages. Um, a terrific audience team that is focused on, on the terms that will help the editorial team reach their goals. And as part of that, within the e-commerce team itself, we've got a brilliant commercial team that builds the relationships with affiliate partners and merchants. And obviously being as successful as we are, those relationships are strong and continue to be. We've got these e-commerce directors who help build the strategies with the vertical leads. We've got like amazing analysts and and a brilliant product team to help sort of optimize and and curate that that content. And as for how that worked during the pandemic, it was no different. We just did our jobs. But you saw a significant uptick, yeah, in terms of traffic and in terms of, I'm assuming in terms of affiliate revenue. We obviously did. Um, but if you think from the future side of things, we weren't in control of people being in lockdown or, or not in lockdown. Now their needs might have changed. So people might have bought more laptops to work from home, for instance, and we may have um, responded to that audience need by creating more content around that. Uh, but that's no different from what happens in any kind of season, right? So mm. so we flex to the audience needs, we, we, we listen to them, we, we do our research, and then we'll create content that we think best serves that need whatever that need might be at the time if you if you take for instance um a massive site like tech radar which always has whatever it is 60 70 million sessions a month or something um the work that goes behind tech radar yes you've got more writers um on on a brand that big and that's been going for so long but the work that actually happens is no different from a relatively new site such as um, Bike Perfect, which we launched a year or two ago, which is just a site about site. But it's the same. It's absolutely the same setup. It's the same infrastructure. It's the same way of working, which we do across all the future brands. The only difference is the audience demand. So what happened in the pandemic was was kind of like a, a version of that, where the only thing that really changed was the heightened audience demand because people were, had nothing to do but, you know, sit, in, sit indoors. So we didn't have to change a great deal about how we worked. It, it may have affected exactly what we worked on in terms of topics and, you know, um, things that people were more interested in. But it didn't change how we worked at all. Was that how you were able to launch the gardening vertical, for example, really quickly? Uh, well, the gardening vertical sort of planning happened as we were, um, which is much more sort of core future strategy, really. So that happened as we were um, in the in sort of final part of the TI acquisition, where we recognised that they had a large bank of um, print content that we thought would do really well online um, in a in a magazine that they had, in a series of magazines that they had. And we had thought, well, actually, this is an opportunity to put this um, in a website, which is which is exactly what we did. 
So that wasn't a response in the, the pandemic mm. wasn't even a catalyst to us doing mm. that. We wanted to do that because that is historically what Future's done. We would acquire um, mm. publishers and they may have some print content that we actually think could be used just as well online. Um, and that's that's how the Garden Etc. launched. Was It was a plan from the, from the TI mm. acquisition to do that. Do you think you learned anything specifically about your audience uh, through the pandemic? Did... Did it give you any insights or anything that you would thought, oh yeah, we should be doing more of that? One of the lessons is that the, their passion for their pastimes doesn't change. And I think there was, it perhaps wasn't a lesson, but it was like, it's almost just sweet. It's a very romantic thing. Like their love for whatever it is doesn't die. Um, so when life got really tough, they turned to the things that they love the most. So... And, and it was a privilege to be able to serve them. And I think my takeaway was kind of feeling even more necessary than we usually are as a publisher um, in that time of need. So I think there was a sense of privilege and responsibility to be involved in them because suddenly people could go outside and suddenly the advice you give them on how to play a Paul McCartney song on a guitar or what the best bike to buy is for the one hour of exercise they're allowed to do a day or how to um what telescope to buy and how to look at the stars at night was it, it augmented what we normally do is dealing in people's things they do when they have free time to actually this is something they need right now so i think for me it gave working future a sense of actually this is a real privilege and it's a real responsibility to do these things that really, really genuinely matter to people because no matter what happens, these are things they're going to love. And we saw great engagement across all of our sites and and um, they obviously had more time to do those things and everything else. Uh, but, it, but it honestly was brilliant to feel like actually we're, we're, we've increased the importance we have to our, to our audience because they are now seeking comfort from developing their garden or or making music or, or beating the end of level boss and that so that that felt good so looking forward future acquired go compare and mozo in australia what what does that mean for the business is it is it just that you own a comparison site now or is it actually that is there a is there a master plan is there an integration coming we're always looking at new ways to expand offering to users. So if you if you park, um, go compare for a second. It wasn't more than much more than five years ago that we didn't have any e-commerce offering to users, but we're fundamentally kind of doing the same thing, which is like we're engaging them, giving how tos, giving them buying advice or whatever else. So we're always looking at ways to expand our offering to users, and I think we do do that. Um, we, we call it adding spokes to our wheel at future and that's and I and I don't think this is different to that. So we take our responsibility as these sort of trusted creators and, and brand owners very seriously. And you can connect the go compare deal to this. So if customers are coming to us for advice on uh, what phone to buy and then the, and they're doing that because we have that proven expertise, then we also think we probably have a duty to them to um, give them advice around best gadget insurance and it's the same for pet or homes or car mm -hmm. right so so we've got this user's trust we feel like we've got good offers and good information to share with them so why not enhance that offering for them um on those 
on those legacy brands. So we want to help people with the things that really matter to them. I think Go Compare helps us do that with it's got brilliant tech and and a long history of working in sectors where we haven't had the expertise. And one of the things that we do at Future is where we recognize we have a shortage of expertise. We either develop it or we look to acquire it. And that's definitely what we've done here. And I think it goes both ways as well. So not only does Go Compare enrich our legacy brands, but they can also enrich it. So with our editorial expertise, we can help make Go Compare an even stronger offering for its users. So th- there's definitely some clear, I think, synergies. Now, it may take a while for all of this to develop because those integrations, I think, should be done slowly and carefully. But there's no question in mind that that Go Compared will enhance the offering for our users. And that's ultimately what we're all about. You said about going carefully there. The idea of marrying e-commerce with content creation or even traditional advertising there's the space there to screw that up right how do you how do you make sure you don't screw it up particularly for the audience i mean there's massive massive potential to screw it up like, like there's no question um but the but the answer is really simple like with most things the answer is really simple you just have to be very disciplined about it and we're really clear that our audience interest is our commercial interest so over time, the way we make money will change. It used to be we'd make a lot of money out of selling magazines in the 80s and then subscriptions or whatever else. But but the audience interest had to remain. So the, the commercial ways of working has always orbited that one thing. So our editorial teams are entirely independent from any department. Now, we, they clearly work with them. We, we do support each other in that sense but if it's been decided that actually we should it would be great if we recommended laptops on tech radar to our customers the editorial team like that's a good idea we'll (laughs) we're going to recommend laptops to buy they will do all of it so Mm. whatever top 10 whatever they want they they anything it's entirely independent the job of e-commerce or the job of ads is not to get involved in that it's to stay stay the hell away so because editorial want to help their audience make better buying decisions, because obviously they want to do that because the audience want to make better buying decisions. Once you have that engagement and that trust, which the editorial teams have won by creating good independent content, then it is the job of e-commerce or the job of ads or the, and the job of tech and everyone else to then monetize that. If you start having commercially the way, you just don't have an audience. And without an audience, you don't have a business. So it's a pretty straightforward thing for, for me and, and for future, which is editorial are the ones who connect with the audience. So get them to connect with the audience by re- by creating content that is entirely independent, is really good, You know, has a good reach, it ranks really well. Once you have that, then it's the job of the rest of the business to try and get value out of that. Is there an ideal revenue mix at Future? We are very clear that we always want to diversify revenues. And and that's part of the reasons Future has been so successful over the past few years. There's been a clear appetite and there continues to be be a clear appetite to diversify revenues. Now, clearly, e-commerce has has grown significantly over the past five years as being a large um, piece of that. And digital advertising has grown as well clearly while other areas such as um, 
newsstand print has has shrunk over time and obviously events has just had a difficult year but that's exactly why we always want to diversify is because because it might not be the case that everything's always there forever because we understand in media having been publishing since 1985 that there will always be changes to 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 the revenue mixes now what's important to us is is the is the revenue healthy um so once you have a good mix it's a question of is the is the margin good is there growth potential in this uh what's what's the effort versus reward that's clearly things that we need to talk about but we also talk about the diversification into different territories so if you've got the different revenue mix it's not just do you have advertising revenues is that advertising revenue coming from different territories australia uk um us so it in answer to your question, I don't think there's an ideal mix. There might be one today, but it might well be different tomorrow. Um, the important thing is to constantly keep trying to diversify with new healthy revenue streams, which takes, which requires innovation and requires, you know, a lot of tech development and a, a, and a lot of work from lots of different departments to get to a new revenue stream. But equally, it means you still have to find the time to be committed to those revenue streams that might not be as healthy as they were because there's still an opportunity there and, pe- and audiences are still engaging with it. So we're not departing print. Mm. You know, as we, we may well have been able to make that decision three or four years ago just to leave print, but actually there is value in that. We believe we can run it well. We, we see real value in print. So I think in terms of an ideal mix, I don't think there is one that's permanent. It will change over time. Our job is to manage that revenue mix as as, as well as we can. Do you ever worry that Google throws some mad algorithm change in and, and the e-commerce, the affiliate business is, is impacted by that? Well, they've done about four algorithm changes in the past month, including two, two core ones. So we're never worried about the algorithm, but we're obviously very conscious of it and we and we do take it seriously but what i would say is that there's always a lot of talk around the google's algorithm as though it's this kind of alien thing that we have to kind of obey and is somehow a different master to the audience needs we obviously don't see the source code for the algorithm and and no one does and i and i dare say there's not one person at google that's managed to see all of it it's it's a very complex thing but what is clear is we look at the trend lines of of the of that algorithm and we look at how that relates to what we're doing and i think i think there's a lot of um companies out there that perhaps don't give google the credit what what google is trying to do is surface the best possible content and it's creating a very complex algorithm in order to analyze and assess what they think is very good content and they have a clear direction which is is this good for the user? Um, does it does it answer? Does it solve the question? So, if someone's typed in "best uh, mountain bike 2021," that's a question, and Google wants to surface the best possible answer across the internet for that question. That's a very human need, and I think that algorithm is becoming complex that so is able to best serve that human need. Our job 
as content creators is to serve that human need as best we can. So, so we feel like if someone's asking what is the best mountain bike in 2021, our job is to answer that really, really, really well. And that means having, you know, a great article that's got a lot of information about everything you'd need to know about having a, a mountain bike in 2021. It would have lots of options at different price ranges. And we would also recognize the need for us to be an authority on that topic, which means actually if a user's coming to that article, maybe they want to read more than one page and they're going to want to read a whole slew of reviews on, on different mountain bikes. And maybe they're going to want to see that there's interviews with manufacturers or, or there's, you know, videos on these things being tested. So as long as we do our job really, really well in answering that question, we have no fear about the algorithm. No fear at all. So our last question for all our guests, we ask for a media recommendation for our listeners. I've done a lot of running recently, just obviously um, as my permitted exercise during the pandemic. <laughs> but um, I used to listen to songs, but I actually started to listen to podcasts throughout it. I do like all of the Marvel stuff and um, have been a comic book fan for years and years. So I, I listen to the Kevin Smith podcast, Fat Man Beyond. I find that really, really good. Um, and if anyone's interested in that kind of um, industry, then I think it's always good fun. He's also developing the new He-Man series on Netflix. So a particular interest in that. So if you're still listening at this point, this is our 193rd episode. Uh, we've been going for nearly, gosh, nearly five years now, guys. How has that happened? Wow. Um, if you would like to support us, um, you can kick us a just enough for a coffee, which we'll probably spend on sound equipment. Um, yeah, if you want to kick us a coffee or if you would like to actually support us every month, you can go to voices.media slash support and there is a little Ko-Fi button there where you can support us. And we really do appreciate every single donation. We absolutely do. And if you're desperate for more Media Voices content, then sign up to our daily newsletter that contains four of the most important media stories of the day, no more, no less, as curated by our team. That's me, Chris and Esther. Of course, there's a link to our latest episode, and from there you can get through to Ko-Fi and give us some money, or you can get back to our website and check out our archives, which are growing every week because we're a weekly podcast ah. <laughs> that's how that works but until next week when we'll be back for our final episode of the summer season with oh. a fantastic guest and a tour through all the news and views from the media world over the week thank you very much for listening and do stay safe <laughs> <laughs>